Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einsteiner Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteiner Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. You're listening to 3 Triple R. Big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. We've got you now until 12 for an hour of science, and in the studio with me is Dr. Linden. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Nice to see you. It's good to see you. This will be your last show for a little while. It might be my last show for a little while. If I am here next month, I don't think you want me on the air. I'm probably just going to (laughs) swear. Well, hopefully it will only be a three, six, 12-month gap before yes. you come back. Whatever you choose it Lovely to, be, to will, be here today. will work perfectly. Stacey, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Always good to have you in from the country. Oh, it's a cracking day today. It is. Beautiful drive-in. Great. And our first guest, actually, we have in the studio at the start of the show today. We're mixing it up because, you know, he's got to go and lunches, big lunches. I don't know what they do, these people. Uh, Dr. Sandro DeMaio is the CEO of VicHealth. Welcome to the studio, Sandro. G'day. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you in. Um, now, we're not here to talk about your cookbook. Did they no. tell you that? <laughs> Tell, first of all, what's the you, you worked a lot on this. This um, I often see you on Twitter saying, "What are you having for dinner?" That's right. Yeah, one <laughs> of the one of the many ways that we connected with people during lockdown and just tried to bring a bit of, I suppose, community to Melbourne during mm. such dark and difficult but necessary times. Um, so we started asking people to share what they were having for dinner as a bit of inspiration. I know I kind of lost the mojo, the cooking mojo, a few times. Yep. So having a few hundred, at some points, thousands of people responding what they're cooking that night, um, I think it you know, gave us a little bit of hope and also yeah. a bit of community. Yeah, I usually found your tweets just made me hungry. Like, <laughs> I was sort of like, uh, you know, not ready yet, but uh, we'll get on to it. But yeah. uh, I think, look, I think you're right. I think it's good for various people to share things like that and just keep people together, which I think is really, it's a big part we don't talk about a lot, but um, it is something. And, and your, your cookbook that you put out, which mm. I will admit I don't have, but I right. um, heard a lot about it. it it's sort of more science-based. That's right. So I started my life as a GP, uh, as a doctor, never, yep. never a GP. I did want to one day become, but got lost on a path in public health. But um, And I noticed that a lot of the patients, a lot of people I was seeing, they were really confused about health and nutrition and mm. kind of how to maintain good health, how to cook, you know, easy, uh, tasty food that was good for you. And so I had the opportunity to write a book. All the, um, all the profits go to charity, so I don't make yep. any money from the book at all. Um, but... Uh, it was an opportunity to write something that really is a mixture of the science, how do you navigate um, healthy eating, uh, and then you know things like how do you read a nutrition label, right? Uh, and then a hundred of my own recipes based on you know the the teachings and preachings of my nonna yep, uh, and the modified Mediterranean diet. Yeah, yeah. And that reading of the labels, I mean, how, how many chapters is that? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I do say at the at the outset that you need a PhD to yeah. be able to navigate food and nutrition. Uh, you know, in a supermarket these days. Um, so there, there are a couple of pages that explain sort of all the different ways that the um, very clever people in food industry hide sugar. Um, it also talks about how to, you know, how to look at a nutrition label, compare two products, but also to understand if it is healthy or not. Um, of yeah. course, the answer to all this is, you know, for government to step up and actually make nutrition labelling clearer, fairer, more transparent, yep. but industry doesn't want that. Um, and uh, I think the 
there, is, there are good signs from federal government that um, the winds are changing and that um, Minister Butler will do more mm. than his predecessors, but um, it's yet to be seen. So we'll keep pushing yeah. hard and using different ways, including a book, to empower yeah. communities in the meantime. Yeah, I think it'd be great when we get to the point where it's about communication and not compliance as well. Yeah. You know, because, you know, you can tick all these boxes of compliance and that's fine and it's in, you know, what, three-point font on the back somewhere. Yeah. But the reality is that doesn't communicate to a, a, a general populace that no. know, walks into a supermarket and, as you say, is just like, I don't know where to look. I don't no. know where to start. And that's, yeah. And it's, that's a space, it's a space where we're falling behind internationally. We're now one of the highest consumers of added sugar in the world. Right. Um, you know, we, we are a nation with overwhelming burden of chronic disease. We're seeing that play out in real time at the moment in our healthcare system. The crisis we have is really because, you know, in, a, in large part because of a background lack of action on, um, you know, addressing chronic diseases like diabetes and heart disease, which are largely preventable. Mm. We know what to do. We're just simply not doing it as a government. Um, yep. and, and so, you know, food labelling is part of that. It's to, you shouldn't have to kind of go looking for it. And many countries around the world, uh, way, way ahead of us in this space. Yeah. You know, really clear front of pack labelling, clearer laws. You, you know, you can't say things like no added sugar when the product is thirty percent sugar. And yeah. and there are products on the market in Australia that do exactly that today. Yeah, it amazes me when you go to a, a, a regional town where you might be staying in a cabin and they have to indicate that the water is not from the mains. That's right. Simple yeah. simple labelling like that. Like, we wouldn't accept it. If you no. come and tell me, hey, man, that's from the tank. I've been drinking that for two days. Yeah, like, yeah. we would not accept that. But when we go into a supermarket, it's, it's a free-for-all. Yeah, absolutely. And I often say a supermarket... Uh, is really designed more like a casino than mm. a fresh food market. The amount of evidence that goes into uh, yep. no lights, no windows, no clock is all designed to keep us in there longer. The height, the width, the length of the aisles are all based on uh, cognitive behavioural studies in the last three decades to try and, yeah. you know, we know that if they're too long, too high, the aisles, we won't walk down them. But then if they're not high enough or long enough, we don't pass enough products and pick up a whole bunch of things we didn't need. The end of aisles, um, you know, that's really expensive real estate. So yep. uh, it's usually the highly profitable foods, high in salt, fat and sugar because they're easy to make and you can sell them for a huge markup. They're the mm -hmm. ones that are at the end of the aisle. They're the ones that are the buy one, get one free. Many of these things, again, are not legal in other countries. Uh, we're way behind in this space, and we're seeing, mm. you know, a, an epidemic of um, chronic disease as a result. You're freaking me out, Sandra. Uh, happy Sunday. <laughs> happy Sunday, folks. If you're, walk if you're listening right now while you're walking down the supermarket, head for the exit. Um, so, interesting, you know, because you, you and I have been interacting a bit on Twitter in the space yeah. of, of vaping and smoking and so forth. And it's funny because I was reflecting on a, a talk I gave a few months back now for my old friend Mike who runs the Royal Society. Mm. And part of that was on communication and the way things are communicated. And I managed to pull out of a hoarding box that I've got somewhere my wife sitting behind me laughing, I'm sure. Um, this, this old pack I got when I was in year seven at school yeah. from the Anti-Cancer Council, which had a little syringe in it and a little filter device that allowed you to smoke a cigarette and observe the amount of tar. Oh, wow. And I've still got this, man. Wow. It's vintage. It's vintage. <laughs> if someone wants know. to give me a million dollars <laughs> and... We'll donate to Triple R. I will give yeah. it to you. But, but it's this. But at the time, I was working in a milk bar selling cigarettes. All oh, right. And so this had a really strong impact on me yeah. as as a child. Also had a, an uncle who had emphysema. So all these things sort of came together, and it really was a powerful way in which of delivering information. Mm. But now we have this scenario coming up at the moment of vaping. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but 
originally it seemed as though this was pitched as a good alternative to smoking. Was that misleading? I mean, where, where, do, where do we do we go wrong? Yeah, so to understand the context of e-cigarettes, you kind of have to, first of all, take a step back and look at the last sort of 70 years of tobacco mm. control yep. worldwide. So there are more smokers on the planet today than there were 10 years ago. Right. This The, the, the kind of fight against uh, a product that if used exactly as intended will kill one in two to one in three of its long-term users, um, mm. that I'm talking about cigarettes here, yep. Yep. Um, that is not over. And industry really have written the playbook that fossil fuels and uh, even the food industry have, you know, borrowed um, in terms of how you delay action, how you distract mm. the government, how you make it seem like it's a personal responsibility issue, that you can blame the individual, um, all of those things. And and I should also say, because it's Sunday morning and I don't want everyone to be totally depressed, um, we are world leaders in tobacco control. In right. fact, I think yesterday was the 10-year anniversary of plain packaging, plain packaging. When, yep. when Nicola Roxon, you know, um, stood up to the world. And it still gives me chills now. It's giving me chills just talking about it because how profoundly brave that was um, for a country like Australia to say enough is enough. Um, You're not going to continue, you know, big tobacco is not going to continue to profit at the cost of of not just lives, but huge amounts of pain and suffering Mm. known for many decades, hidden um, and distracted and bribed and all the ways that they delayed legislation and and controls to stand up and say, we're going to, you know, really act properly to um, protect populations from these products 10 years ago was groundbreaking. And also, it gave coverage to many countries around the world. I I worked with the United Nations before I came back to Australia for this job, and um, it gave many countries around the world the coverage, countries that are poorer countries than we are and don't have the money to fight uh, in the World Trade Organization and in in the international courts, because we were sued as a country after we brought those um, protections in 10 years Mm -hmm. ago. It gave them coverage uh, to take similar actions. Yeah. So, so along then came this new, this new sort of scourge or this new um, way of delivering nicotine into your lungs and into your body, a highly addictive and quite toxic um, substance called e-cigarettes. And, you know, there had been lots of different um, ploys in the meantime to try and get uh, from, from tobacco companies to try and... Um, you know, keep people addicted and keep these mm. keep keep their, I suppose, markets. You know, keep their Intact. shareholders yeah. shareholders happy. Yep. Yep. Um, and probably for a few years, it wasn't seen as a as a really big challenge. It was, um, and that was probably a mistake by the public health community because we we didn't really see, uh, you know, the huge um, threat that 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 it was. Mm. Um, thankfully, in Australia, we took a a very um, cautious path in government. So. Um, you can get access to e-cigarettes in Australia. They're not banned. Um, you can get them via a, a doctor with a prescription mm. as a sort of last-line way of quitting smoking. Right. Um, so this is po- you've tried the patches, you've tried the that's gun, right. you've, you've tried done all the- these other things. Yeah, and which are far safer, which are far and safer. have been around much longer yep. than e-cigarettes as a way of um, getting off smoking. Yeah, uh, tradi- you know, uh, ma- um, burning cigarettes, yep. smoking. Uh, and so you can get a prescription and get access to these products either through a chemist or to import them yourself. And what's, Sandra, just to back up for a second there, what, what's happening with the e-cigarette? Because I remember the first time I, I heard e-cigarette and I thought, is this like, you know, when we all got that little candle on our phone for, 
you know, for some unfortunately and, not. And no. I thought, what is an e-cigarette? Yeah, you know, like it's obviously a real cigarette in a yeah, sense. Yeah, and and look, and it it's been very well marketed. So these products look like USB drives. They look like hoodie mm. tog- toggles. They look like highlighters. They come right. in bright packaging. Uh, it looks, it smells, it feels like smoking 35 years ago right. you know they're all of the same tactics being used to push these uh, onto populations and particularly young people we can get to that in a second so what these products there are there are a small range of products when we talk about e-cigarettes but they're basically products that deliver nicotine through a vapor or a non-burning um uh product that that sort of um well we the ones we have in australia are vaporizing products right so it's a liquid uh, it contains usually just a few products, including products that that are uh, very often banned uh, actually for use. Fifty uh, percent of products, fifty percent of these products contain banned substances. Um, you inhale them; it heats that vapor, the quite a, a, a thick, viscous vapor uh, liquid into a vapor. Mm-hmm. You breathe that deep into your lungs, and with it, it delivers uh, nicotine very often. Um, right. it, it's also, but of course, all the vapor and all the other chemicals leave your lungs as you breathe out. Well, no, <laughs> as, as, as you know. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah. so it's it's sort of you know often you'll see people. It's this kind of plume. Um, it's uh, often a fruity colour, a fruity flavour. So it might smell like smell like Fruit Loops or bubble gum or mm. um, kiwi splash or whatever it is. Um, and it also doesn't have the smell of of, of cigarettes smoke, yeah. of smoke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and, and the result is that, you know, through... I mean, I think really the, the headline is that um, the industry has used the last couple of years, and particularly the pandemic, uh, to to drive an explosion in, in the use of these products here in Australia and, and, and also here in Victoria, um, yeah. and particularly among young people. They will use a whole bunch of arguments to try and deflect away from the fact that the single biggest user of these products is now... 18 to 24-year-olds, that a significant number of teenagers are mm. using them. Um, and, uh, and really the, the, you know, the main ambition of the industry at the moment, because these are, um, there's a bit of a free-for-all happening in the country with huge amounts coming in over the border, uh, most of them contain nicotine and simply don't have it on the packaging. Right. Uh, so a single one of these products could, could contain anything up to the equivalent of 10 packets of cigarettes in a single disposable uh, item wow. the equivalent amount of nicotine mm. um, highly potent highly addictive uh, all they simply need to do at the moment is not put it up, put not declare that nicotine is on the packet um, and it makes it into the country it's being sold largely through social media TikTok in mm-hmm. particular yeah. um, you know you can jump on TikTok or Snapchat as a young person uh, find the product get it delivered out the back of a camera in about 15 minutes um, you know, it's probably about $30 for the equivalent of between five and 10 packets of cigarettes. Wow. Um, and as I said, the vast majority based on seizures in New South Wales and Western Australia, while they don't declare they have uh, nicotine, the vast majority do. And so yeah. what we're walking into here is the potential to have an entire new generation of, of young people addicted to nicotine. Yeah. Um, and, and we need very urgent uh, government action at all levels. Yep. And Sandra, why do you think these are so appealing to young people? Is it, you know, we've seen a move away from drinking alcohol. Is Mm. it a replacement to that? Or is it that the cigarettes are cool thing that was the story when cigarettes became cool with young people a few uh, generations ago? Yeah, it's a great question. I I think it's a mix of things. First of all, um, the timing of using the pandemic is not 
is not a um, coincidence. Young people have had a really tough couple of years. I don't need to tell you, you're probably a parent, I'm not, but I know based on my nieces, on the evidence that we've been collecting as an agency, um, they've had a really tough couple of years. So you've had young people isolated, largely interacting online through digital means, and ex a, a huge um, increase in the use of particularly media like TikTok and, and Snapchat, um, and so the industry has really preyed on young people's isolation, vulnerability, lack of connection um, to push a product that is is really being framed as as sort of cool, um, new, uh, a, a little bit risky. Um, you know, young people know it's not good for you. They don't. I don't think they realise. Well, based on our evidence, they don't realise how, in fact, dangerous they they potentially are. Um, but I think it's been, yeah, a mixture of, you know, young people will always probably look for um, ways to feel belonging and connection, yeah. particularly over the last couple of years. Um, and even we, our evidence shows that um, uh, as a way of controlling or, or managing anxiety among young people, they're using these products, which, which really frightens me that we're in a situation where, you know, young people are having to turn to e-cigarettes to manage their mental health um, you know, but that's another conversation. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a shocking potential outcome of this. I think is you know where there is a gap elsewhere, they've jumped into. I mean, yeah. when, when you say one question before we talk about the health impacts, um, when you say the industry, are we talking about the same industry? Who's the dominant owner of these products? Is it still the tobacco industry? So a large proportion is. Um, right. So anything around 30 40%, but we don't really know because, you know, they're owned mm. by companies that are owned by companies right. that are owned by companies. But, yes, a, a significant proportion are owned by the tobacco industry, the same companies that have been killing people in their millions yeah. for decades now very effectively, um, you know, and then there is a, a group that are, you know, foreign-owned. Most of these products are made in China or right. made somewhere... You know, all of them basically are made overseas. They're bought online. Um, there's a total lack of transparency around what is in the products when they're mm. brought into the country. There's a lack of regulation around safety. Um, yep. and, uh, and really the only legal use of these products at the moment is for tobacco, is, is for second line, right. you know, if prescription you cannot... Prescription medicine. A prescription yep. medicine, yep. exactly. Yep. Um, and, and that was, you know, that's a, that's a very good way. It's a very effective way of giving people access to these products mm. if, they, if it truly is how they need to quit smoking. But yeah. I should say that 90% of people quit smoking, because we fund the quit program here in Victoria. We have yep. done for many decades. Uh, I know from our colleagues uh, there and at the Cancer Council, most people will quit smoking... 90% of people quit smoking unaided. Right. So it's a, it's a myth that people need, you know, lots of products to get off smoking. There are a group of people that find it very difficult, and for them, you know, a chat with a GP and access to yep. chewing gum or patches can be very helpful. But we're talking a tiny, tiny proportion of people that would actually need these products. Yeah. And, and, and I should also say that there are no long-term safety trials of these products. Right. So while the TGA here in Australia has approved them because, you know, in, in theory they're worse than cigarettes. Um, well, they're better, better than cigarettes. Sorry, better, better than, than yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which, Less which, harmful. Yeah. You know, which is a product that yeah, kills yeah. one in two of its users. Yep. So it's sort of yep. like saying it's yeah. better than walking out into the freeway traffic. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, they are 
we don't know what they do long term, yeah. and and we certainly. They, they shouldn't be in the hands of young people. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I remember when um, talking to, you probably know Professor Megan Munsey, who yeah. really pushed the issue around stem cell therapies and how inappropriate that industry was for a long time. And I think it was probably a decade ago on this show, you know, I said to her, I said, so basically if your health fund, Medicare or your pharmacist aren't behind it, don't touch it with a barge pole, you <laughs> yeah. know. And I think it's a similar message with this yeah. sort of stuff. If you are not doing that through a, a medical practitioner, you don't know what you're getting. Yeah. So my question then is, we, we know very well now, uh, well, I suppose we probably know 90% of what cigarettes do to our bodies and mm. how bad that is over a protracted period. I mean, many of the diseases caused by smoking happen over decades, mm. but are then chronic and cause death, et cetera, et cetera. And I think every, probably everyone listening at some stage has you know, lost a family member at some point to smoking, uh, you know, myself, several, you know, mm. grandparent type stuff, you know, but in, in, in that history has happened. Um, what's the deal with the e-cigarettes and with vaping? I mean, do we, it seems like it's more immediate. The sort of media I've heard around that is that we're not waiting decades for people to die. We're waiting months. Yeah. So these products have only been around for a few years. And the short answer is that really the long-term risk from these products, we don't know, which mm. terrifies me, quite frankly, yep. that, yeah. that thousands, hundreds of thousands of Victorians are using these products now. I think the latest count, 250,000 Victorians are using these products. Um, you know, huge proportion, anything between 20 and 30% of young adults, huge numbers of people. They've never smoked. They're taking these products up because it's being pushed on them through social media. It's being positioned as a lifestyle, you know, something cool to do. And we simply don't know the long-term effects. What yep. we do know is that it causes inflammation in the lungs, which is likely, you know, to be associated with um, lung disease, chronic lung disease, and even possibly cancer. We know that some of the chemicals in these products are associated with um, uh, brain damage and heart damage. We know that 50% of these products contain chemicals that are illegal, that are completely right. banned in Australia. There are more than 1,700 different flavours on the market at the moment. Uh, we don't have any controls or any really good understanding of what those additional chemicals do. Um, and, yeah. and what we do know is that um, these products, you know, as I said, even if they don't say they have nicotine on the packet... What young people are turning to these products for is the effects of nicotine, right. a highly addictive, highly toxic drug. Uh, we know that there have been instances of children drinking, uh, young children drinking the the, vape, the, the product oh, that the you fluid straight the up. fluid straight up wow. and, and deaths. We know that there have been um, uh, acute lung injuries uh, associated with some of the additives and possibly with actually the core ingredients. Mm. Um, and we know that uh, these products, as I said, um, you know, the, the core ingredient and the, the core rationale for them is to get you highly addicted to a product. And, and I think the other part is we don't, we don't appreciate, we talk about addiction and we sort of throw that word out there. But what we're talking about is young people who, you know, are craving and seeking this mm. product mm. and the impacts that 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 even just addiction can have on their mental health, on their yep. social networks, on their school performance, on their life trajectory is enormous. So the long-term effects, are, you know, I, I think it will be, I think as time goes forward, we'll realise more and more that we are walking into an yep. absolute nightmare here. Um, but even the early signs are very, very scary. Yeah. 
Sandro, um, who's monitoring those short, medium, long-term effects? Is that something that VicHealth are, are monitoring or funding agencies to do so? Is there any ongoing surveillance on those uh, impacts? Yeah, there is. So um, there's a lot of really good research happening around the world and here in Australia, um, including at the Royal Children's Hospital, including um, uh, in other um, sort of healthcare um networks across the state and across the country. There are centres, excellent centres, Emily Banks in a, um, ANU, and also, of course, our own uh, QUIT program delivered by Cancer Council Victoria. Um, so there are a lot of people looking at this, and the evidence is actually emerging very, very quickly that a lot of our worst fears are becoming a reality. Um, but we will need to continue to monitor. And, um, and, and of course, the TGA, you know, because it is, a, it is classified as a drug... Um, and it's a therapeutic. It's been, um, you know, uh, authorised as a, as a therapeutic. They're also uh, monitoring it because at the end of the day, um, the TGA is not just about whether the drug helps you quit smoking. It's also about whether the drug is safe to use mm. um, and of high quality. And certainly the last two, you know, there are big questions around the vast majority of e-cigarettes on the market. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, Sandra, one of the uh, things I've often said is one of the most powerful fields, um, you know, academic fields that there is in the world that we don't pay enough attention to is the one of communication. And mm. I think if everyone listening, you know, hearing this just pays a bit more attention to how great these companies are at communicating mm. in a way that manipulates. Totally. And I think this is something that we don't pay enough attention to. And if you, if you just pull back the cloak every now and then, and as you say, just look at where things are on supermarket shelves, look at the way in which they're, they're sort of brought to us. And, mm. and, and as you say, those particular flavours are designed for a particular audience. Mm. You know, this is manipulation at the highest level. They are brilliant at them. You know, I tip my hat to how great they are at that that task but we've got to be more on guard because mm. um it's getting through and it's getting through in a way that's that's very dangerous we're going to take a short break i want to come back and talk to you about the possibility of australia having something like a cdc mm, great okay we'll be back in a second folks uh you're listening to einstein and gogo on three triple r um just a moment triple r Now, welcome back, folks. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. We've got Dr. Sandro DeMaio in from VicHealth, the CEO. And uh, we've been talking all about vaping and e-cigarettes. Sandro, what do we need to do to um, halt this onslaught of badness? Yeah, so we really need two things, one from state government and one from federal government. So federal government really needs to step up and prohibit the imports of these products without a prescription. We, we, mm-hmm. We're not trying to stop anyone who is legitimately trying to quit smoking from getting access to a product that is safe and effective with a prescription. Right. But everyone else, or all of the other products that are being uh, really flooded into our market as a way of getting young people addicted, uh, you know, the use of Fruit Loops and milk flavour and, and, you know, pr- products that look like lipstick or even uh, hoodie toggles that you can smuggle mm-hmm. into school or highlighters that are clearly made for a young audience, a school-based audience, all of those sorts of products need to be stopped at the border uh, through, uh, you know, through the use of a prohibited uh, imports uh, scheme. At the state level, though, we're the only state in Australia without a retail licensing scheme. And, yep. it, and it basically means that it falls on police to try and regulate, to, to, to stop shops from selling or individuals from selling these products 
um, illegally. And, you know, co- co- police are trying to do a lot at the moment. Yep. They don't need this on their shoulders as well, and we need to support our police. Um, and so the creation of a retail licensing scheme would mean that uh, it's very clear then who can and cannot sell these products. Uh, there would be... Um, uh, enforcement officers who would be able to be funded and given, you know, the time to go and check and make sure that uh, shops and and outlets are doing it properly. Um, But the combination of of those two, stopping the illegal importation, tightening our borders and um, bringing in a a retail licensing scheme here in Victoria would go a long way. And we'll continue to work through uh, QUIT to, you know, sound the alarm and educate young people and empower um, uh, you know, young people, parents, mm. teachers, all those sorts of things. But that will be a drop in the ocean yep. compared to actually putting the proper uh, supports in place by well, government. The good news is we've got an election coming up. This uh, this could be an election campaign we, item we for all so. parties. We hope so. Yeah, that would be a good thing if they're listening, and there's some of them do. Um, I assume they all do. Of course they do. Of course they do. <laughs> <laughs> they will after this. Um, now, Sandra, just be, before we let you go, though, I did want to talk to you about the idea of an Australian Centre for Disease Control. Mm. I think everyone who's seen any movie will realise that there's this <laughs> thing called the CDC in America. Yeah. It's like it's the only one in the world sometimes. Yeah. Um, but it is. But is a, a, it's a particular organisation that deals with disease and disease spread and the response to disease from government. I mean, we've just come through several years of this. We obviously have mechanisms at the state and federal level, mm. you know, to varying degrees of success, um, depending on what you we're talking about, to, to deal with disease. What what would change if we had a something equivalent to the CDC? Yeah, so first of all, um, we're the only country in the OECD without a CDC. Yeah. So it's actually quite unusual not to have a CDC. We've been calling on the government to establish one for quite a few decades. We came close 10 years ago with the establishment of... The the National Preventative Health Agency, which was then disbanded by the former government, uh, and and now the government that put that in place is back in. Um, So what we're hoping for is really a a national agency. I don't think anyone would agree that um, the national coordination during the pandemic was as good as it could have been. I think I'm probably being a bit generous there. So... um, We've got great state agencies. We have, you know, chief health officers who do an incredible job. Mm. Um, We have some of the best institutions in the world here in Australia in public health, both in terms of controlling infectious diseases but also uh, chronic disease and and, um, things like heart disease and diabetes. The American model basically integrates that into an independence, so it's a really important word because it means that they can speak truth to power, they can say what they need to say, uh, whether it's good for government at that moment or not, uh, and really they work for the people. The second is that it's evidence-based, so it's driven by what the evidence is telling us. Yep. Um, and the third is that it's protected and has the function you know, and the resources to be able to uh, manage, inform, uh, direct, um, and, uh, and give advice on the response to emerging health threats for Australia. We'd like to see a CDC, really importantly, uh, that is not only focused on infectious disease, but also, like the US, is focused on chronic diseases like diabetes mm. and heart disease. And the reason for this, because you might think, well, we've just been through a pandemic, surely we should just focus on, you know, the next pandemic. But what we learned from this pandemic was that the, your, your single biggest risk in terms of worse outcomes, in terms of ending up in ICU or even dying from COVID, was the pre-existing uh, health conditions like diabetes, heart disease, or even overweight Uh, We also know that COVID increases your risk long-term of stroke and heart disease. Mm. So 
to try and establish one without the other yep. is a big missed opportunity, I think, for Australia. It's not the way that the US has gone, and I think we need to kind of emulate the good parts of that model. So we'd like to see a strong, independent, evidence-based and well-resourced national agency. It should build on what we already have. We don't need another big bloated bureaucracy. We need something that kind of integrates you know, the great work that's being done in the states and at the federal level already, including our data agencies and our health yeah. agencies. Um, but it should, really importantly, include both infectious disease and chronic disease so that we can, you know, I, I often say that the single best thing we can do to pre prepare for the next pandemic is to improve the long-term health of Australians and, yep. and really focus on reducing health inequities. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, mean, I think back to the days of the synchrotron wars between Victoria <laughs> and Queensland, and, you know, I think uh, as as Premier Beattie at the time said, you know, they got the biscuits and we got the synchrotron after, I think, Arnott's relocated. But um, would this be a distributed sort of scenario across the states or would, would there be a home? Look, I, I'm, a, I'm a very proud Victorian. Um, <laughs> it's got to be here. But, but, but I think first, look... For me, I don't really care where it is, and I don't yeah. want to. I don't personally want to get involved in that conversation, only because um, I want it to be right for Australians, yeah. and Victorians will then benefit regardless of what it what its postcode is. Um, I want the model to be right. I want it to focus on the right things, to be independent, strong, mm. um, and evidence based. If you know it ends up in the Sunshine State. Uh, so be it. Yeah. Uh, it will still benefit Victorians. Obviously, having said that, of course, it should be in Victoria. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I think it's to the the idea of it making sure that it caters appropriately for for regions and and rural populations yeah. that have been hit hardest in many regards with health over the last couple of years as well. Exactly, and and it was the same populations as you know that were hit hardest by the pandemic as mm. are being hit hardest by you know chronic diseases like diabetes yeah. and heart disease. It is often, um, you know, our First Nations communities, yep. it's um, our regional and rural communities, um, it's our low in lower income communities. And, and so I think a really strong focus on reducing and eliminating health inequities, mm. um, you know, I think that should be what we call for and what we focus on in, in the delivery of this agency. I'm less worried about sort of, you know, as I say, it's postcode or yeah. uh, or other issues. Absolutely. And look, I think from, from our perspective here, you know, this is a science show and just the idea that we'd be able to more effectively use the science at, its hand, at hand. Absolutely. Often we find we're not doing that. And yep. that, that is gutting when you see that it's there especially around things around chronic disease management and, and integrated health and evidence-based mm. care and managed comprehensive care. These, these, are, these are terms that a lot of people just don't experience yeah. in, in a country like Australia where we, you know, to be fair, we're a very rich nation, but many people just don't experience those. So that's, that's a significant problem that, you know, we need to overcome that everyone benefits from. It is, yeah. and, and, and that being able to kind of see above the noise in a, in a moment of crisis and to be able to kind of commission the right research, but also move quickly. Um, yeah. You know, the, the strength of an agency like a CDC is its agility. It's not its size. We have big organisations. And as I said, we want to build on what already exists, including the incredible infrastructure that we're building or have built or have here yeah. in Victoria. It's the, it's the ability to work across agencies, across jurisdictions, to move quickly uh, to be across the evidence, to inform and sometimes direct. And yep. I think, um, you know, we're only going to have an opportunity to get this right once. Yep. Um, we'd like to make sure and really, you know, again, stress to the, to the federal government that it's not an either or, it's not a zero sum when it comes to 
either responding to the next pandemic from an infectious right. perspective yeah. or a chronic disease perspective. It needs to be both, both or we will have missed a big opportunity for yeah. Australians. Absolutely. Sandra, it's been great having you in here today. And uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, but we're in the middle of the Radiothon campaign. So, you know, this is where Triple R gets all of its money from, from our listeners and the consumers. You know, we, right. don't, we don't get big loads of cash from uh, from big, you know, tobacco companies. Or <laughs> I don't think any uh, fossil fuel companies would come near us with barge boxes. We'd say so many bad things about them. But um, it's been great having you on during that period, and it's, well, a, it's a big thing for us. Yeah, and I think the, the important role that Triple R plays in, again, speaking truth to power and, and informing uh, Victorians is, um, is a really important one. So thank you for your contribution. Absolutely our pleasure, and we hope to keep doing it. And, folks, uh, on that great note from Sandra, if you do want to get online and subscribe to Triple R right now, please do so. Please uh, do. We always uh, need your support. We're going to take a break for some music, and we'll be back in just a moment with some more science for you. Triple R. Welcome back, folks. You are listening to Triple R, and uh, some amazing people actually have got online and subscribed to Triple R. Kay Mitchell from uh, Bond Beach has renewed their subscription to Einstein the Gogo. Thank you very much. Also, Louise Gallagher from Q to the Breakfasters. We've got Marty, Mr. Shaky Gale, the Turkey Slappers from Killer East has renewed their band, uh, $85 to Twang. Great. We've had Phil Byrne from uh, Caulfield South has renewed to Radiotherapy and a donation of $20. Thank you, Phil. And Luke Brigham from Belgrave South has renewed to the Breakfasters. Great to see all these coming through. Dr. Linden, over to you. Thanks, Dr. Shane. I'm not quite sure how I feel now after Sandro. I'm kind of motivated and inspired not to let the supermarket get me, but I'm also terrified about all the things that that are kind of out to get us and how sophisticated yeah. the methodologies are yeah, look um, in different organisations and different places trying to sell stuff. So I'm not sure how you're feeling at home. Maybe having Sandro on to talk about how important health is has made you feel like you want to go outside. Maybe it's a beautiful day in, in Nam here this morning. Maybe you've wanted to go out, you wanted to go for a walk. Maybe you wanted to go and walk your dog even. You know, we know that during the pandemic there was a record uptake in dogs, record numbers of dogs being rescued, record numbers of dogs being adopted and brought into family homes. But now lots of people are getting back to work and there's a record number of dogs being surrendered now. Yeah. And, and brought back to pounds and brought back to shelters, which is really heartbreaking. And, you know, I'm from the northern suburbs, so, of course, I've got a rescue staffie just, you know, <laughs> live in the cliche. Um, but it made me think about, you know, as I was dragging my dog around this morning in the sun, I thought we should, we should be giving a bit more of a shout-out here on the show about the value of dogs and the value of dogs in science because yeah. dogs play quite a unique role. There's not a lot of fields that haven't got a dog story or two in them. Ecology, archaeology, of course, medical science, psychology, space exploration. Mm. Dogs are sort of a, a part of Western science history. And I was wondering, Dr. Stacey, Dr. Shane, who your, who your favourite scientific dogs were? Well, my favourite dog is a public health dog. Of course. Of course. Um, and uh, so this is like an old story from um, 1920s uh, where Siberian huskies, or uh, across, uh, sorry, Alaskan huskies, are um, contributing to combating a diphtheria epidemic um, by, you know, traversing thousands of kilometres across the 
Alaskan winter to deliver um, anti antitoxin for diphtheria epidemic. And they've made movies out of these two. There's two dogs in particular that were quite famous, Bolto and Togo. Um, look them up. They're, they're Disney movies now. Mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. Played by quite famous yeah. voices, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, Maybe. <laughs> Kevin Bacon. I think I Kevin, saw the name Kevin Bacon. Bacon. Oh, well, that yeah, guy's everywhere go. too. Well, dog, it... Dogs like bacon. So. Footloose. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Dr. Shane? Well, actually, mine's sort of peripheral, but uh, for me, it's the inspiration that dogs had on what is probably one of the longest-running experiments in biological history, and that is the, um, the experiment done by uh, Ludmila Trout, which was where they were looking at domestication of wolves, yes. and for the last 59 or 60 years, whatever it is now, have been looking at the fox community because foxes were a bit easier to deal with than wolves. Mm. And so they split them off into several groups and domesticated one set, not the other. And you can actually now buy foxes, domesticated foxes, in, really? in the US. Not here. Oh. Yeah. Um, but, you know, essentially this was to study study dogs mm. and how domestication has worked over millennia and what that looks like. And I just, if you read up about this story of the domestication foxes experiment, it is extraordinary, it, yes. extraordinary yeah. to see how their attitudes play out relative not not necessarily due to their looks and yeah yeah, fascinating stuff. Fascinating. The All driven by dogs, you know, like because we want to understand our dogs. Exactly. Yeah. We want to understand our dogs and how successful they are as a species, you know. Mm. Like domestication has allowed them to always have food and always have shelter because the food and the shelter is provided by us, you yeah. know. It's Humans. very, very yep. clever evolutionary tactic. I thought you were going to say a Soviet Union astronaut dog. Mm. Uh, well, you know. Everyone says that. I thought I'd chuck in something oh, new. Oh, Pavlov's dog. Yeah. yeah. Pavlov's dog, yeah. Well, yeah. that's classic. Yep. Classic. There's lots, there's lots around. Well, the dog that I wanted to talk about today, thinking about, you know, puppies that are, have, have been abandoned or maybe you're thinking, oh, dog's too hard or maybe you're thinking possibly we could bring in a dog for Christmas this year, is mm. Chaser. Have you guys heard about Chaser the dog? It sounds like something you have at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> Chaser was named Chaser because she would chase everything. Right, right. yep. Original. Um, and she is known as one of, if not the, smartest dog in the world. Now, Chaser was brought into a family in the US in about 2004, I think. And she was quite unlucky in some ways because she was brought into the family of a retired canine behavioural psychologist. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. she was brought in as a puppy not long after a paper had been published. So she was a border collie. Right. And she was uh, she was brought into this family at Christmas time, brought by this retired psychologist's wife. John Pilly is his name, and his wife Sally. They lost their dog, and uh, he thought no more. He thought no more dogs after that. But his wife thought, no, you need a new, you need a dog, mate. So yep. she um, she brought bought him Chaser for Christmas one year. Um, but it was also just after a paper had been published by other people who were looking at uh, uh, border collies and how they understand language. And right. in this other study. Rico, the, the star of this other study, was able to have learnt 200 different nouns. That's right? a lot of nouns. It's a lot of nouns, 200 words. Um, there was a little bit of discussion amongst the community about, okay, did he learn individual words? And, and did he learn, you know, if you asked Rico, fetch the sock, did he understand fetch and did he understand sock, sock. or did he understand fetch sock right, yeah. as one thing? You know, so there were a few questions that had come out of this paper. And then when uh, Professor Peely adopted or had Chaser um, come home as a puppy, I think he wanted to see 
if 200 was as high as it could go. <laughs> could you get more? Do you think maybe Border Collies could learn a bit more? Right, could, yeah. Can Border Collies understand or dogs understand the difference between the verb and the noun? And so that's what he did with this mm. dog. Over a three-year period, him and his family, and I think they had... Um, you know, other sort of people from the university community. He was retired. He'd started this experiment in his 70s. I thought, I thought you were going to say, I think he had too much time on his hands. <laughs> he probably did as well. But he also had, you know, a lifetime of experience of understanding canine um, psychology. He trained this dog, you know, and I should say it, like, Chaser wasn't an incredible super dog. They only gave her enough basic training so she would stay safe. You know, she she loved playing and she, you know, she wasn't, like the most incredible obedient dog but she was excellent at learning nouns i I wonder like at what point you run out of things to teach a dog though like you know because there's two 200 there's a lot of stuff around the house right i mean what what comes after that you're starting to buy products genuinely that's that's it so he started doing this experiment and he realized quickly that 200 was not the upper limit he could get higher and higher and higher and then he realized actually i'm onto something really big here um but i'm quite retired and you know i've got other (laughs) things going on so he brought in a colleague of his and they thought crap we need to publish this stuff so they published a couple of papers on Chaser, quite seminal publications in the field that have been uh, translated into lots of different languages because Chaser was able to identify, guess, guess how many? I want to say 600. Oh, yeah, I was going to say 450, 1,022 <laughs> separate toys. Wow. 1,022 separate nouns. And that upper limit is not because her brain got full, it was because they ran out of, they ran out of, no, ran out of time. <laughs> they, they didn't have the five or six yeah. hours a day to work with her anymore. So not only was she able to individually identify over mm. a thousand different nouns, you know, get the Santa Claus toy, get the lips toy, the ball, the bunny, all of these different things. You could send this dog to the shopping centre. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say. And I'm wondering, after what Sandra was talking about, would this dog be immune Ooh. to the marketing? Could you send it in with a list and it would come back with no impulse items? That's a good... That, you know what? Maybe because... This could be a way around it. The thing that I found interesting about this, thinking about my own dog who doesn't do anything unless she gets a treat, <laughs> Chaser was not trained with treats. You know, right. if you yeah, 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 take yeah. a puppy it's to puppy school... It's very easy to train with treats. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. and that's what they do. You know, you cut up lots of ham, you got ham in yep. your pockets. It's a whole big thing. But that's not how Chaser was trained. She was trained by play and by right. attention, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so maybe she would be able to do that because she wouldn't be distracted by the, the snack aisle. End of aisle, yeah. end of aisle temptation be, items. No, two be, for one, no. No, no thank no, you. No, thank you. No, thanks, Cabri. I'm going to walk straight past that. Probably <laughs> ex- extra good for dogs. But not only could she... I identify over a thousand different toys but she was able to differentiate between the verb and the noun so they right. they would put down three toys and they would say nudge this one wow. lick this one move this one and she could do it perfectly and the thing that blew my mind was that she was also able to categorize the toys and this is a thing you see in three or four year old children where you say you would put they would put say 25 toys out and 12 of them were balls of various mm. shapes and mm. sizes or six of them were frisbees, and they would say, go and get the frisbee, yep. another frisbee, another frisbee. And she would get all the frisbees and leave all the non-frisbees behind. Wow. Or she would get all the toys and leave all the non-toys that she knew she wasn't allowed to touch behind. Isn't that 
It's wild. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so incredible. Um, I, want, I want this same person now to test a whole lot of different dogs. Oh, well, so he passed away. Right. Oh. Um, and in 2017, I think. Yep. And Chaser passed away about a year later. And a story that made me real. So Chaser wasn't a big barker. She didn't bark mm. much. But about half an hour before he passed away, she stood at the end of his bed oh. and she oh. let out a single bark. That was Aww. a goodbye. Oh, man. Isn't that just my very high pregnancy hormone? <laughs> <laughs> didn't go well with that story. But, uh, uh, yeah, his daughter's continuing the work. And yeah. she's putting out a, a book next year about oh, the story. It's an illustrated book. And I think there's also some components about how you can teach your, jo- your dog. dog to go grocery shopping. Exactly. Yeah. So we can have a world full of chases. Isn't that amazing? So it's if you're fantastic. thinking about rescuing a puppy, maybe, maybe take some inspiration from Chaser. It yep. can be done. And teach it without treats. Yes, yeah, yeah, teach it without that's treats. That's All right, we'll be back in just a moment, folks, with just a couple of important station announcements for you. Triple R. Uh, we're back. Final few minutes of Einstein and Gogo. Stacey, you've got some big news for us. I've got a quick news item, and it's quite appropriate for Dr. Linden, who's about to go on maternity leave. Um, so researchers in Japan have discovered uh, an the optimal strategy to calm a crying child. Wait, hang on. Let me get a piece of paper. Take your notes. Yep. Okay, I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. It's a small study, 21 kids, babies. um, So Mm. take it with a grain of salt. I'm going to put the pencil down. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So um, they had like newborns to seven-month-old babies. Um, They put ECG monitors, like halter monitors on them to monitor their heart rate and then lots of videos to monitor their interactions with their parents. And what they wanted to do is test four strategies. So one was where you're holding a baby, walking around, trying to calm it down from crying or just sit quietly holding a baby. Um, The third one was putting the baby in a pram or a moving cot, like some more movement. And the fourth one is just putting it down into a stationary cot. Cot. So, unsurprisingly, um, when you're walking the baby around, it de- statistically uh, decreased your um, incidence of crying. So that that's, we don't need science to tell us yeah, that. Like, we know. you know, baby cries, you pick it up. Like that works. But the researchers said, and this is funny because it'll sort of ring true to you. Um, you know, but getting the baby to sleep is not the end of the story. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> done by done by mainly males. Yeah, yeah exactly. Thank probably. you, science. <laughs> so when you put the baby down to, to to sleep in the cot, it invariably wakes up. Right, this is so annoying. And so what they did is this is when the ECG results came into play. So they wanted to monitor. Um, you know, the heart rate slowed when you hold your baby or when your baby's asleep, but it's it, it's very responsive to to human movements. And as soon as you um, remove the baby from your ch- chest, it can detect that. So mm-hmm. I've, I've tried like really slowly trying to put your baby mm-hmm. down and you think, oh, I'm going to trick it mm-hmm. to thinking I'm still holding yeah. it. But no, no, no. It's, it's, like, just- it's like in um, Indiana Jones when he's with the idol, you know, and he's with the sandbag oh. and it doesn't quite work out. <laughs> you know? So no. that's what I was thinking about when you were thinking about trying to put the baby down yeah, without yeah, yeah. not hearing your heartbeat as you do it. You've got to balance it yeah. exactly. Yeah. You need a little heartbeat thing that you switch over like, like Indy did in the first film. I remember that scene now. Yeah, yeah. watch out, watch out for the big boulder. At three o'clock in the morning when I'm trying to yeah. put my baby down. You'll be thinking about that. I'm planting bag. this in your head <laughs> so that when you're putting that baby down, you're going to think of the idol and Indiana Jones and then the big rock. Okay. And as you're running out of the room, you'll be looking back behind you for the big rock. That's in your head, Lyndon. <laughs> Thank you for that. Okay, right. I'll take some more science now. Okay. <laughs> Less Indiana Jones parenting advice. Science of 21 cases. Um, so anyway, this optimal strategy is, so you don't have to hold it the whole time, which is good. The optimal strategy is you have to walk while holding the baby for five minutes, and it's a brisk walk, but you can't sort of make too many sort of um, swift pivots and movements. But then 
don't just put the baby down after it's falling asleep in your arms. You have to sit down and then hold it for eight minutes. And then they say, um, <laughs> then you can transfer it to the cot. Because this time window, they say, roughly aligns with the sleep cycle of the ah, baby. Okay. And, um, and so that should be enough. So it's five plus um, eight minutes of sitting and then you put the baby down. Okay. All right, I will make sure to set quite loud alarms at five oh, no, no. and eight minutes. That's what I should do, right? Yeah, no, you no, you'll need a clock. You'll okay. need a clock. Okay. Yeah. Well, Great. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, yeah. Dr. Stacey. That's a right. little buzzing thing on your wrist, you know, that, that should help. They'll know. They always know. Gee, there's, there, you know, the, I, I can imagine there's something in that, though, around hmm. the sleep cycle period and not knowing exactly. You know, if you, if you could monitor that, like if you – if you could somehow put a monitor on the baby that told you when it switched into that part oh, of the sleep yeah. cycle and a little light came on on the baby. little EEG, yeah. like little cords yeah, all yeah, through yeah, their yeah, brain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can get fancy bassinets that do that now. Really? Yeah, yeah. They cost oh. a lot, but I think you can. And then, ooh, and then the bassinet will do all the it's jiggling all right, well, for you. That sounds good. Anyway, we're going to finish up the show. Dr. Linden, good luck with your next adventure. Thank you did you. well your last one, so I have little doubt that we'll be seeing you again in thanks, a few Dr. months' Shane. time. Yes, I'll see you in 2023. Sounds great. Dr. Stacey, thanks so much for chatting to us and being on the show again. Always good to have your health brain in the studio with us, especially when we had Sandra in. Oh, yeah. He was a good guest. Because my health brain is smaller than your health brain. <laughs> <laughs> so to speak. So uh, all good. We're going to hand over to the team from Eat It, folks. Thanks for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. Remember, science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane. Have a fantastic weekend, and we'll chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.